Love is time. T-I-M-E. It's a four-letter word. Love is time. And of course, in America, everybody is in a hurry all the time. How do you structure your time and have a balance between working, loving, and playing? I see life as one day, as one day, and I am at the evening time of my life. And I really want to think about that I'm going to die very happy, not asking what the world has given me, but in what way I was able to guide others from victimization to empowerment, from darkness to light, and the biggest prison, which is in your own mind, and the key is in your pocket. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. And Victor Frankel states, when we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. In unfortunate events, trials and hardships will always come. But what defines us isn't the situation itself. It's our response. Control what you can, focus your energy on the positive, and have faith that things will get better. And while this approach won't guarantee you success, the alternative certainly will push you further away from it. My guest today is a survivor of one of the most horrific, challenging, and dark times the world has ever seen, the Holocaust. As a teenager, her and her family were sent to Auschwitz, one of the most horrendous concentration camps of that time. I can't even begin to imagine how traumatic, difficult, and frightening it was for her. And many of you are wondering if her situation could possibly get any worse. It did. Her parents were killed in the gas chamber the day they arrived. Some of her mother's last words to her were this. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen. Just remember, no one can take away what you've put in your mind. She took those words to heart and they became the core for her survival. Today, she is not only surviving, but she is thriving. Dr. Edith Eager, who is 93 years old, joins me on the show today. She is a highly sought after psychologist, author, and keynote speaker. Edie, as her friends affectionately call her, obtained her doctorate in psychology and learned to use her imprisonment at Auschwitz as a powerful analogy for the prisons we create in our own minds. Her mission is now to inspire others to discard their limitations and find renewal and freedom within themselves. After becoming a New York Times bestselling author with her memoir, The Choice, Dr. Eager wrote a hands-on guide to overcoming trauma called The Gift, 12 Lessons to Save Your Life. It was released last fall. We talk about how to maintain faith despite any horrible situation, finding forgiveness, redefining who you are as a person despite your past, and maintaining your sanity as well as controlling your emotions during times of distress. We also discuss why you can't heal what you don't feel and why she needed to return to Auschwitz to heal from her traumatic experience. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Edith Eager. 
to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Dr. Eager, welcome to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, I'm so happy to show up for you. You look great for being 93. And one of the things, one of the many things that's incredibly admirable about you is that you used your experience being imprisoned during the Holocaust at Auschwitz and and surviving and coming out of that, not only to survive, but to thrive. And what I think a lot of people listening to this can relate to is the importance of managing some sense of sanity and your emotions during massive times of adversity when everything feels like it's been stripped from you. I mean, I know you had your family taken from you relationships, your sense of identity, certainty, your faith. So talk a bit about how you were able to not only survive, but thrive your experience uh, during the Holocaust to become who you are today. You know, I like to mention Hans Salier, who got the Nobel Prize for the stress studies. And he says, that if something stressful happens to you, you have two automatic responses. You either fight or flee. Mm. That's his theory. So when I arrived in Auschwitz, if you touched the guards, you were shot right away, right in front of me. If I tried to flee and touch the board wires, I would have been electrocuted. So that's why I call Auschwitz an opportunity for an opportunity to discover how to really look at any situation and see how you can flow because fight or flee didn't work. And I realized that nothing is coming from the outside. And I was discovering my inner resources that I was able to not to give in and not to give up, that they could take me to the gas chamber any minute. We didn't know four o'clock in the morning where we're going to end up. We didn't know when we took a shower, whether we're going to have water or gas coming. And that's why it's very important to differentiate between reacting or responding. And the darker, the darker, the darker, the darker things appeared to be, the closer I felt to the wonderful God that taught me how to turn hatred into pity. Mm. That's amazing. And it's, it's very heartwarming, especially because when people hear things that happen, such as what you experienced or children being killed or things, women being raped and things like that, that are just so unfortunate and terrible. They tend to run away from God and think that, that he's not real. And if God is real, why is this stuff happening? And, and God must hate us. How has your faith in God evolved through the years and even during those times? And what advice do you have for someone who's in those moments that are feeling spiritually lost and they just don't know what to believe in? Well, we use a lot of defense mechanism, you know. It didn't happen. And Ahmad Dijidad said the Holocaust didn't happen. And I think it's very important not to deny someone else's truth. And because Plato said, you have to think of a lie and it's got to be a good one. 
and then you repeat it, repeat it until you believe it. So our biggest enemy is really not really knowing how to question authority. Now, if a woman came to me and told me I was raped, but how can I tell you because you were in Auschwitz? And my reply is, you were more in prison than I was because I knew the enemy. So the question is, the question is, whatever happened to you, we cannot change the past, but you can change your attitude. You can realize that somehow we don't compare who suffered more. But I think that Auschwitz brought me closer to my God because also self-love, that you learn how to really love yourself and not to allow anybody to define who you are, you're beautiful, because God only made one of you. So there is really a new beginning of a discovery that is I see now with people who are locked in and they stop blaming so much because while you blame, you're still a child. So the question is not why me, but what now? I love that so much. And you and I were chatting before we recorded about so many people now there's a lot of people that will never experience being in prison physically, but many will experience being in prison mentally and emotionally and getting out of those prisons becomes so challenging. And I think one of the hardest things is because people hold on to who they were in the past and they hold on to what people have said and they develop this identity around that. So how were you able to redefine who you were as a person despite your past and despite all the stuff that was said to you and done to you to be able to become new and maybe somebody listening to this can take away something that you say so that they can apply it to their life to change who they are? I work and I will work as long as I live. And what I do is take your precious hand and we take a journey and we revisit the places where we've been. We don't run away anymore. You don't fight it. You don't deny it anymore. Not even minimize it anymore. And we take a journey and realize that you cannot heal what you don't feel. And it's called grief. It's not clinical depression. Going through the grief going through the valley of the shadow of death, but don't camp there. While you hate, you're still a prisoner. I refuse to do that. I want to live in a present. I can only touch you now. And that's what keeps me young at 93. (laughs) I live in a present and I think young, but not young and foolish. It's very, very important to be young and be childlike, but not childish. Because you ask a child, why do you do that? The child would say, because I feel like it. And God gave us temptation. Why? So we can practice the freedom of choice. I like a Hungarian chocolate cake, but I know that if I eat it, 
I'm going to gain weight. And I was beaten very severely, and I have a very bad scoliosis. And if I gain weight, I get more pain. So that's why we still feel like it as an adult, but I decide whether I will act upon it or not. So when we are children, we sit in the back of the car and we can mess around and somebody drive the car. So now I ask, especially teenagers, do you want to be driven or do you want to be the driver? Because there is no freedom without responsibility. It's anarchy. So when we were liberated, people would go through the gate and pretty soon they would come back. And see that we didn't know what to do with the freedom. If you read psychology, it's called the Learn Helplessness by Dr. Seligman. He's the man. Yeah, and you, you, gosh, it's so incredible your wisdom that you still that you have and still are able to articulate at your age is, is incredibly inspiring on so many levels. And I think so, so many people listening to this are just going to be blown away and. One of the things that you you alluded to that I think a lot of people struggle with is this this statement you made that you can't heal what you don't feel. And a lot of people want to run away from their pain. A lot of people want to run from their past hurts, their past traumas. But what they don't realize is when they sweep this stuff under the rug, that rug begins to build up with tons of dirt, dust, and it stinks and it starts to stink in other other areas of your life start to stink as well because it's starting to, to bleed over into that. And I was reading in your book that you actually had to go back to Auschwitz yes. to complete your healing journey and help yourself have peace with your past. So talk a bit about that experience, what that was like and how it really helped you move through that dark time in your life. Larry King just died, and I wish I could have my interview with him. But the first thing he asked me, were there any kind people ever that you experienced among the enemy? And I said, yes, in April 1945, when the German peoples were starving, I was told that if you leave the premises, you're going to be killed right away. But my sister told me if I don't get some food, she'll die. So I broke the rules. I went out and I jumped down because I saw some carrots in the next garden. And when I came out, I met the guy with a gun and all I heard was the clicking and I began to pray for him. And then there was an eye contact, and he turned the gun around, and he pushed me inside. And the following morning, he came and wanted to know who dared to break the rules. And I crawled to him, and he gave me a little loaf of bread and told me, you must have been very hungry to do what you did. Yes, I met the diamond, even in that place. So I think... Returning to Auschwitz was one of the most positive things I did. And I had many patients coming back from Vietnam. And I was beginning to practice the post-traumatic stress theory. And I had two paraplegics. And one of them was just bitching and 
blaming and, and angry. And conversely, the other one said to me, Doc, you wouldn't be surprised when I tell you that I feel so blessed that I sit in a chair, in a, in a wheelchair, and I can see my children's eyes much closer and the flowers, I can reach for them. And I wear a white coat and it says, Dr. Eager, Department of Psychiatry. And I feel like the worst imposter. It's a Dr. Eager, Department of Psychiatry. And I'm feeling, gosh, I cannot take them further than I have gone myself. So I got to go back to that and look at that lion in her face and reclaim my innocence and assign the shame and guilt to the perpetrator and begin my healing journey of forgiving myself. And I asked my sister to come with me because we were there together and I told her we lost our family, we never went to a funeral. And she looked at me and she said, you're an idiot, you're a masochist. So we went through the same experience, different responses. And there you are. Here you are. Here you are out in the public showing people that you had an opportunity to be born and to be able to live life and find meaning and purpose to really be chosen to be a guide. Perspective is definitely everything, Dr. Eager. And I think we were chatting before we recorded and you had done some research on my story and how I was incarcerated and was able to fortunately turn my life around. And I think what helped me so much, just as Mm -hmm. it seems it's obviously helped you is having perspective on the situation and knowing that you could only control what you're able to control what's in front of you. And I know, I think the last words your mom said to you were, we don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen. Just remember, no one can take away what you've put in your mind. And, and I remember reading that in your book and just starting to tear up because that's everything in life. There's so many people right now that are going through hardship. So many people right now are isolated. So many people have, are feeling completely lost and they don't realize if they could just control what they tell themselves on a daily basis, if they could control what they put in their mind, yes. their attitude that they could completely change their life and you're living proof. If you can do it, anyone can. So talk a bit about how important that those last words your mom said to you were in helping you navigate through that horrible experience and turning it into something positive. Organifi is a line of organic superfood blends that offers plant-based nutrition made with high quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic and free of fillers and contain less than three grams of sugar per serving. This includes Organifi green juice, which I am now using in my smoothies, either after a workout or for a great on-the-go snack. It's loaded with essential superfoods and a clinical dose of ashwagandha. 
It helps reduce stress and support healthy cortisol levels. Cutting down on caffeine is a big initiative of mine as we head into the new year, and Organifi's Red Juice is going to help me do just that. It's basically a superfood fruit punch that gives me a jolt of energy without the caffeine, and it only has two grams of sugar. If you aren't into smoothies, don't worry. Organifi products are super easy to mix, and you can add one scoop to a glass of water. So go to www.organifi.com forward slash Doug and use code Doug for 20% off your order. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com forward slash Doug and use the code Doug for 20% off any item. Now back to the show. I think it's very important to think about your thinking because what you think you create. Mm. You know, I was on the advisory committee for the Veterans Administration and as such, I went to Washington sometimes twice a year, and we passed the Holocaust Museum. And I said to myself, I'm not going there. I've been there, done that, finished. But the sixth year, I arrived Sunday, and I didn't have anything to do. I decided I'm going to go. Yes. So they told me to go up to the fourth floor, and I was looking for the GIs, because I was liberated in Austria, in Gunskirchen, and I looked for the American flag, and I was looking at pictures, and Germany, and France, and, and so on. And then there was a big picture on the right side. It said, new arrivals in Auschwitz, Hungary, 1944. And I thought I saw myself. But then I didn't see my sister, and I never went back. So I don't know and don't look for me. But the following day, I was at the um, committee, and there was a big carving, Dr. Edith Eva Eager. And I was wondering how did that girl became this woman? And that is really what you have really been through when you were able to focus on your thinking and paying attention what you're focusing on that has to be in alignment to get you closer to your goal. I like to call the goal an arrow, an arrow to follow. And you say to yourself, yes, I am. Yes, I can. Yes, I will. I had a patient of mine who went to a marathon And somehow in the middle, she didn't think she can go further. But she ran into my office. She said, I did it because I said, yes, I am. Yes, I can. Yes, I will. And I think the yes is is so much more important than to be for something rather than against, against. I don't like that. I don't want that. I usually say I'm not interested. I want to do certain yeses. Yes, I am. Yes, I am one of a kind. Many people can do what I can do, but not the way I can do that. I'm one of a kind. You are one of a kind. We do the same thing, but not the same way. Right. And I, and I think what you said is so, so spot on in that we are our own unique selves. And I think during these times of, of isolation, it's, it gives people an opportunity to redefine who they, yeah, to redefine who they are. Maybe it gives them a chance to work on their health that they haven't worked on or 
to develop deeper relationships with people close to them or maybe yeah, exercise, take up a new hobby. And I think what happened, yeah, you love dancing, right? Yeah, go belly dancing, do something ridiculous, yes, because my name is Stretch, not Shrink, and I like to stretch your comfort zone so you come out stronger for it. The more you suffer, the stronger you become. Mm, I love that, and I love how in your book you you talk about how you call yourself a stretch and not a shrink because you're helping people expand their minds. You're helping people expand who they are as a human being. You're helping people expand their reach to help more people. And I think what shrinks people down is anger, is resentment, is shame, sadness. And I've heard you say that holding stuff in will make you sicker than the feelings themselves. What comes out doesn't make you ill. What stays, what you do with anger, you either vent it, most women suppress it. In Hungary, they say, don't breathe down to your breast. That's a very good Hungarian saying. What comes out of your body doesn't make you ill. You got to scream it out. I like to dissolve it because when I'm angry, I allowed you to get to me. And so you have to reclaim your strength because anger is not a primary emotion. Underneath of anger is a lot of fear and love and fear does not coexist. You're not born with fear. You're not born with judgment. And yet we do judge because we are taught to hate. We're not born with it. And I know you you say in your book, I think you make the comparison that when we're judging, we're displaying some sense of Nazi within us, right? Exactly. The Hitler within us or the beauty and the love and the Mother Teresa and, and all the wonderful ways that we can truly unite and empower each other with our differences. Yeah. And so bringing it, I guess, to present times now, there's a lot of divisiveness, I think, going on in society. A lot of people are are angry. A lot of people are hurting. There's a lot of finger pointing. And I think we've lost the sense to have compassion for people that don't agree with us. I think we've lost the ability to love somebody unconditionally, despite what they think. And I'm not saying that we have to agree with everybody. I think part of life is being able to share different views, but I think there's you need to have some sense of compassion with when doing so. So what advice do you, what advice would you have for us as a society to come together more and display a sense of unity instead of kind of the polarization that we're in right now? Well, I took care of a 14 year old who came to see me and he was a member of the white supremacy group of David Koresh in Texas. That was before your time. And he got up, he took his elbow on my desk and he said, America has to be white again. And first of all, I'm gonna kill all the Jews. Now, if I would have reacted, I would have probably taken that boy and I would have taken him to a corner and probably would step on him and telling him, 
how dare you talk to me my, this way because my mother died in Auschwitz. But I knew that my most obnoxious person is my best teacher. And I turned to God and I asked God to help me. And God said, find the bigot in you. And I said to God, it's impossible. I came to America in 1949. I worked in a factory doing piecework. It was called a sweatshop. You work as fast as you can. I got seven cents per dozen. So I worked very, very fast. So I wouldn't have to go to the bathroom until I really had to. But when I went to the bathroom, one of them said, colored after Nazi Germany and communist Russia. Picture yourself coming to America looking for democracy and see the separate bathrooms. So instead of bitching, I got together with the black ladies. I joined the NAACP. And lately, I just, I just remembered that in 1963, I was marching, guess with who? Martin Luther Luther King. Wow. And even I got a hug. And you see, love is not what you feel, it's what you do. That you commit yourself to someone else's welfare. So that boy was from Waco, Texas. And if you look into that in history, they were bombed. David Koresh was bombed in Waco, Texas. So you see, the most obnoxious person becomes your best teacher. That's so true. My people's truth, because it's subjective. It's my truth and your truth. So all you have to do is what I do, because when I saw that boy, 14, who gave up all his freedom to this charismatic person, and I did my job is to create an environment for people so they can feel any feelings without the fear of being judged. And I looked at him as lovingly as I could, as a loving mother, and I asked, tell me more, because love is time. D-I-M-E, it's a four-letter word. Love is time. And of course, in America, everybody is in a hurry all the time. How do you structure your time and have a balance between working, loving, and playing? I see life as one day, as one day, and I am at the evening time of my life, and I really want to think about that I'm going to die very happy, not asking what the world has given me, but in what way I was able to guide others from victimization to empowerment, from darkness to light, and the biggest prison, which is in your own mind, and the key is in your pocket. Mm. Wow. Full of wisdom, Dr. Eager. And I'm I'm so impressed by your, your level of wisdom and communication, even as you said you are in the evening like as you said, of your life. And one of the things I wanted to ask you while we were on this subject is being that you are the age you are and where you're at in the time of your life, 
I think there's a lot of people that could gain some perspective and insight and lessons from you. Is there anything as you look back on your life that you regret? Like, is there things you wish you would have taken the time to do more of? Is there things you would have taken the time to do less of as you look back? I think there are things perhaps I could have done things differently. And I remember that I had tremendous survivor's guilt. And even when I graduated with honors, I didn't show up for my graduation because I didn't forgive myself that I survived. So I think that people may have difficulties, as I did, holding on to, to really not forgiving themselves and saying, if I knew then what I know now, I could have done things differently. I know that my parents had tickets to come to America and they didn't use it. So yes, but we cannot change the past. I, that's why I do what I do because I think young and I know that I can only touch you now. You see, I, I wish I could give you a hug right now. So not to really live in the past, but not to forget it or run from it. And everything has a gift in it, everything in life. I am very happy now because I give up my need for other people's approval. It's okay. So if I come to you after this, and I tell you, I really would like to get to know you. And I hope you like to get to know me, Edie. Never mind the Dr. Eager, you tell me, yeah, thank you very much, but I'm really not interested. Now look what happened. I asked what I wanted, I didn't get it. So get rid of the word rejection, because rejection is an English word that people make up to express a feeling when you don't get what you want. Give up the drama. You have as much power over me as I open up to you and I love you. So no one makes me feel angry. No one has power over the way I look at everything as an opportunity. So I think it's important when people tell you I was rejected no such thing. You just wanted something and you didn't get it. So you got to get in touch with your expectation on one hand and reality on the other, and then go back whether your expectations are realistic or unrealistic. I, I can do the high kick now, but not the way I used to do it, from backwards and frontwards, because... I have a bad scoliosis, but I can still do a halfway thing, you know. So you got to be uh, realistic, but not idealistic. Because when you don't get what you want as an idealist, I see people become very sarcastic, very cynical. Yeah, you're you're right. And I think what happens is they don't love themselves in an authentic way. And I think self-love comes down to obviously loving yourself, taking care of yourself in a way that's conducive to who you want to be in the future. And I think it's also comes with personal responsibility and accountability to know that you control 
how you respond to situations. You control how you treat others. You control how you live your day. And I heard you say something that you said, if you wouldn't date yourself or hang out with yourself Saturday night, like why would I want to come hang out with you on Saturday night, right? If you don't love yourself, how do you expect someone else to want to come and love you and hang out with you? That is so good when people are afraid to be with themselves. And I find that a lot in midlife, that people are so afraid to be alone, but that's the only one you're going to have for a lifetime. All other relationships will end. So I think self-love is self-care. It's not narcissistic. You have to be very careful that the definition of love is really the ability to let go. And surrender, right? Yes, exactly. And you, because If you go to a, a 12-step meeting, they don't tell you how to control your drinking. They ask you to surrender and give up the power because you're worthy. You're, you're one of a kind, beautiful diamond. And I have a tremendous respect for the 12-step program. And only the first one deals with the addiction all the others deals with how to be a grown-up and how to grow up and stop blaming. Yeah, I think anybody can benefit from going through the 12 steps, whether they have an addiction or not. Benefit because you learn how to take inventory of yourself and to be able to be childlike, but not childish. Oof. So... One of the things that I know really hit home with me, and it's the last chapter of your book, is the topic of forgiveness. And I think you say, I heard you say something along the lines that it's not, you know, it's not about forgiving somebody else. It's forgiving yourself for judging someone else. And forgiveness is, is freedom for, for you and, and letting go of the people that, that harmed you and wronged you in the situations. And you are obviously a standing image of somebody who has taken forgiveness to the next level. I've heard you talk about how you've come to terms and able to forgive the people in Auschwitz for how they treated you during your time there and what they they did to your life. So talk a bit about how you were really able to forgive people who did so much harm to you and how somebody listening to this, if they're holding on to, to a past resentment, can learn to forgive somebody else or forgive themselves. One of the things I like to tell you that I have been interviewed by thousands of people who have big, big degrees, MDs, PhDs, you name it. You are the best. <laughs> Thank you. You really put yourself into it. I could talk to you for days and days and days. This is really it's so beautiful for me to see a young person I'm going to die very happy knowing that you're here carrying the word, how to let go, because while you hate, you're still a prisoner. You and are. Love is self-care. That's really, really, Jesus said, love thy neighbor as thyself. I really love that. And he also said, only children can go to heaven. I think that's the childlike part. So 
it's not really me having any godly powers to forgive her. I am here to regain my freedom and give myself a gift. See, I want to have joy. I want to have passion. I yeah. don't want to put. I I don't want to put paprika on my chocolate. I I don't want to cover onions and garlic with chocolate either. So I think it's very important to acknowledge that selfish means me, 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 and nobody else comes. The other side of it is everybody else comes first and then me. Are you a Catholic? I'm Christian. I'm not Catholic, but I understand. So my whole view on religion has evolved through the years. When I grew up, all that I thought existed was if you were good, you went to heaven. And if you bad, if you were bad, you went to hell. Exactly. And I was doing and selling drugs. So I thought I was on the highway to hell. So I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in anything other than myself. And when I got to jail, even I didn't believe in anything, but it wasn't until later on in my life, as I did a lot of work on myself and cleared away a lot of the resentment and forgave myself and others that God was right there with me the whole time. And that I might not have been proud of the choices I made, but he was because he used them to help so many other people change their lives. And I felt that part of me died when I was in jail and I was reborn again as this new man when I got out and that, that I learned that, that life didn't happen to me. It happened for me. And I think if people can come to terms with just that statement, instead of worrying about having to go to a place for church or reading this or reading that, and just knowing that there's somebody greater than them looking out for them, that people could be more at peace with themselves, knowing that their life is going to unfold the way it's meant to. There is a difference between belief and faith. Many people tell you, I believe, I believe, I believe. But when you look at their life, what they say and what they do doesn't match. So I think it's what kind of a life a person lives is what is important. And that's why... My faith was truly developing in the darkest places, Mm. like Auschwitz. I came closer to God, the free spirit, the tinkerbell, who can only look at really everything from a point of view in what way we can all unite and empower each other with differences. So I really would like very much people take out this COVID-19, take it as an opportunity to take, take stock of themselves, how far they can go back and realize that they could have died when something happened, but they didn't. So the question is, again, going through the stages of grief, and to be able to feel the feelings, to cry it out, scream it out, but not to get stuck in there, go through the valley of the shadow of death. Don't camp there or set a parcel there. You're so right. I think there's definitely a huge difference between belief and faith. And I, I don't I think faith, at least for me in my experience, is just believing in the unseen. And even though you can't see light in front of you and you're standing 
amidst so much darkness in your life and you can't see anything in front of you, you can't see next to you, you can't see behind you. You just know that as long as you keep giving it your best and putting one foot in front of the other, controlling what you can, that eventually you're going to see light. You don't know when, you don't know how, you don't know where, but you just have this faith. And I think if people could just lean into that and put their energy and focus into that, that belief system about faith, I think their ability to get out of tough situations would be much easier because I think what happens is they get fear. And you talk about being fearful in in the book and you're either evolving or revolving right through fear. And the opposite of depression is expression. Mm. What gets out of your body doesn't make you ill. What stays in there does. So I think it's very, very important uh, for you that you had to be in jail and be alone to look within yourself rather than waiting for somebody to come and liberate you. And now you are guiding others to look within themselves and to be able to discover their untapped potentials. There is a lot of untapped potential in the shadow, in the darkness. I know that. I know that. I live that. This is temporary and we can survive it. I don't have to like it. Right. Yeah, you don't have to like your situation, but I think at the end of the day, you can move through it in a way that that shows that you like yourself. You get stronger. The more you suffer, the stronger you become. I love that. The more you suffer, the stronger you become. I think that's a good place for us to end our our conversation. I could talk to you... for, for a long time, Dr. Eager. And I, we can send you my books and, and sign it. And, and hopefully we'll hug each other and you can sit in my lap. And how old are you? I'm 33. 33. Well, I have grandsons, honey, who are in their 40s. So, so you're going to be my baby boy. That's funny. And I, and I can't wait to meet you, hopefully in person sometime soon. I'd love to get some signed books. And thank you for that. And for those listening, I highly encourage you, I'm sure you already have, to buy her books, The Choice and The Gift. You won't regret it, I promise. And as always, take this episode and take it to heart and apply some of the lessons that she shared on her journey and her experience and the wisdom she gained on how you can take a deep negative and turn it into a positive with whatever you're going through in your life. And if she can do it, anyone can. And I love everything she shared, not only about her journey, but on the topics of self-love, forgiveness, unity, you're surviving and thriving. And what I want people to do is to not only buy her books, but take a screenshot of this episode and tag her and tag myself on your social media and let us know what your favorite part of the episode was. And we look forward to hearing your feedback. And once again, we thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes, and we'll see you next time.